This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, on the air since 2002 when our pilot program launched. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Our first regular episode went on the air in 2003. We wrapped up our 10th season at the end of 2012, celebrating 10 years with two special shows and a concert. At the end of 2017, we completed our 15th season. What you're about to hear today are highlights from the five seasons that bridged us from 10 years to 15 years of doing this. As you'll hear, our programs in those seasons touched on conflict scenarios that are still challenges for us today, including gun violence. This is Colin Goddard, a survivor of the Virginia Tech mass shooting of 2007. He was wounded in that shooting and went on to work for the Brady Campaign to End Gun Violence. Colin Goddard talked to our Carol Boss in 2013. Basically, it comes down to this. I mean, after mass shooting events and after any sort of kind of major mass trauma, mass violence incident, the first question is, why did this happen? You know, why did somebody choose to do this? Why, why could someone act this way? And in the case of Virginia Tech, the person who can answer that question killed himself in the front of my classroom. You know, there is no solid answer to the why question. So what became more answerable to me is how. How did this happen? How did this person actually physically carry out these acts? What did they have with them? What allowed them to do this? And it was pursuing the how. You know, and at the same time, always curious of the why. I mean, the why is, in my opinion, a, a much more broad area. I mean, it's particularly with gun violence, you know, it can range from some mental health issues to bullying to an accident of children playing together and thinking a gun was a toy to you know, depression impulse suicide things like that but the but the how is always the same the how is this metal object in their hands that fires a bullet with the twitch of a finger and the fact that you know background checks aren't done minimally across gun sales in this country was just something so fundamentally wrong and unjust, in my opinion, that I wanted to address it. We need to have a conversation in this country badly about what is responsible gun ownership. You know, not only that mean when you, when you own the gun and it's yours to keeping it safe and locked in home away from children or those that might have uh, problems, but when you then sell the gun to someone to make sure that the person who's buying it from you can at least legally do so. I mean, that's it. And, and the quickest way to do that is with like a 90-second background check. I have so many people come to the events where we show this film and think that this is going to be some anti-gun, no one should have a gun in America kind of thing. And, they're sh- and, and they come up to me afterwards and like, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And I own guns and I, you know, I was in the military and I hunt regularly. And what you're talking about, man, background checks, that's, that's cool with me. I, you know, it's not going to stop me from owning a gun, but if it's going to stop some person with a felony record, you know, then I'm all for it. What's your response to the argument to arm teachers or to um, have more police in schools and public spaces or that um, people believe concealed weapons should be allowed on college campuses? Fundamentally, I don't think we're going to shoot our way out of our problem with shootings in this country. This idea that if only we allowed more people to carry more guns in more public places in this country, then we would all become a safer place. If that idea was true, then, then would, would the country that already allows people to carry guns in, on the streets, in their homes, 
practically everywhere in the country, the country with 300 million guns in circulation already. I mean, in theory, wouldn't we already be the safest place in the world? And if you look at the numbers, we are, in fact, just the opposite of that. You have to take a public health approach and understand that any object that harms or kills another human being by its function, increasing your exposure to that object does not decrease the likelihood of injury or death. It increases the likelihood of injury or death. And people should have that right. Um, people should be allowed to purchase a firearm for their home if they like to. I support that idea. I support that concept. I support the Second Amendment. While you have that right, sometimes it might not be the best option when you have young children, when you have someone in your home fighting a mental illness. Mass shooting survivor and Brady campaign official Colin Goddard. Another person grappling with losing a loved one to violence was Annette Nance Holt, whose 16-year-old son Blair was killed on a Chicago bus in a random act of gun violence, also in 2007. Um, actually, when this first happened to me, um, the fire department recommended that I go to um, a counselor, so I went to this counselor. And, um, you know, I, kept, I went like three times in a row and I sat there and I, all I could do was cry the whole time until one time she asked me, what do you what do, what do you love doing? And I was like, I love my son. I love doing everything I can possibly to make sure he's successful. And so she said, well, what activity were you doing before this? I said, I was learning to play golf. She said, well, you should play golf. I said, that was it for me that day. I could not talk to somebody who told me golf would solve my problem because golf ain't solved my problem yet. So I ended up going to a group called Parents of Murdered Children that's headed by um, parents who've lost their children to violence. And so there I found other people like me and they could understand what I was going through. I needed someone to tell me that what I was feeling was okay and that, you know, chest pains and anxiety, that was all because of losing your child. You know, I have no medical history like that. So we actually started a group um, called Purpose Over Pain where a group of parents got together and we formed an organization of our own and we actually do outreach to parents who've lost their children to violence. Um, the other two things we do is common sense gun legislation. So we go around, we've been to DC, we've been to Springfield and Chicago and even um, New York with mayors against illegal guns and Brady campaign to prevent handgun violence. We've been everywhere talking about gun violence and how can we change this to make it so that innocent people don't die every day because guns are in, in, in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And the third thing that we do is that we actually go out to community groups. We go out to high schools and grammar schools and even parent groups. And we talk about what gun violence does to families, to communities, the long lasting effects of gun violence. Annette, what do you say to a mother who is going through what you went through, the murder of your child? Really, I can tell them I'm sorry because they became part of a sorority. They didn't sign up to join. I just want to say I'm sorry because we failed them. If we keep getting more children murdered behind ours, we failed. We failed as, as people, as a society, as the United States of America. We have failed. We failed to provide the most common right that we should offer people, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we haven't offered that. I'm going to quote you right now from an article, a newspaper article I read um, from a Chicago paper that you said it was up to the community to take action. And that meaning that in the individual communities, uh, we know who has the, we know who has guns, we know who's selling drugs, we know the people that don't belong in our communities. And I think we got this silence that we won't speak up and we won't speak out. Now I can understand people being fearful of being identified as a person that, as they say, snitch. And that's not really a snitch telling somebody who's doing something wrong. But, you know, if we don't speak up in our communities, if we don't take back what is rightfully ours 
from these, well, I call them thugs, I call them hoodlums, whatever the word is. And a lot of people don't agree with that, but that's what they are because they're terrorizing communities. Does your group look at ways to keep these youngsters from becoming thugs, as you call them? What ideas do you have about that? Yes, actually we do. We actually go into high schools and we actually talk to young people about gun violence because a lot of young people think, and I think uh, they've been put out front with the gangs, they think that they won't get the same time as somebody who's older. They think if they're minors, they won't be charged as adults, and that's not true. We just try to change their mindset, and we also offer mentoring where we have um, what we call uh, Safe Saturday Nights, and we bring in kids, uh, different age groups, all the way up to 21. And we have like a little basketball, we have some games, we have some crafts, we feed them, and we talk to them about violence and making good choices. That's Annette Nance Holt, mother of Blair, an innocent teen aged 16 when he was gunned down in Chicago during a botched gang shootout in 2007. In 2013, there was a story of a mass shooting foiled. A school worker near Atlanta actually used compassion and empathy to talk down a young man who'd walked into the school with an AK-47 and 500 rounds of ammunition, hoping to lure police into a gunfight where, according to his attorney, he hoped to be killed himself. The school worker that encountered him in the school office and talked him out of it was Antoinette Tuff. Now, this was part of the 911 call, an open line into the office, when Ms. Tuff was trying to talk to the young man, mixed in with her interview with us. He said he should have just went to the mental hospital instead of doing this because he's not on his medication. Okay. But do you, you want me to try? I can help you. You want me to try? You want me to, you want to talk to them? Want me to talk to them and try to? Okay, but let me talk to them and let, let's see if we can work it out so that you don't have to go away with them for a long time. No, it does matter. I can let them know that you have not tried to harm me or do anything with me or anything if you want to. But that doesn't make any difference. You didn't hit anybody. So, okay, let me ask you this, ma'am. He didn't hit anybody. He just shot outside the door. If I walk out there with him, if they, so they won't shoot him or anything like that, he wants to give himself up. Is that okay? And they won't shoot him? Yes, ma'am. And he ma said he just want to go to the hospital? Okay. I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. And so I'm now telling him my story. Well, don't feel bad, baby. My husband just left me after 33 years. Yes, you do. I mean, I'm sitting here with you and talking to, talking to you about it. I got a son that's multiple disabled. So I'm just telling him about myself, you know, and what I'm going through and how I tried to commit suicide myself and how I didn't think life was worth living, living for. And so then he goes over, he sits in the chair and says that he's going to go to jail and that, you know, he's shot at the police officers and now he takes the gun and he's going to shoot himself. And I say to him, you're not doing that today. We're not going to do that. Mm -mm. That's not going to happen. No, you didn't, baby. It's, it's all going to be well. The lady's going to talk to the police. Okay. And in the midst of me talking to him and saying all of that to him, he goes over and pulls all of the bullets out of his pocket, the magazines, and he takes his gun and everything, including the bottle of water that he brought in there with him, and put it all on the counter beside me. Put it all up there, okay. He's put the weapons down? Yeah. So hold on before you come. He's putting everything down. Okay. So and he's going to get on the floor, so tell him to hold on a minute. And then he goes and lay on the floor to give himself up and let the police come in and get him.
So I don't know what it was that I said that actually resonated with him for him to just give himself up. I don't know what that was. Okay. We're not going to hate you, baby. It's a good thing that you that you giving up. So we're not going to hate you. Okay. He on the ground now with his hands behind the back. Tell the officers don't come in with any gun, no come in shooting or anything so they can come on in and I'll buzz them in. Okay. So just stay there calm. Don't worry about it. I'm going to sit right here so they'll see that you try not to harm me, okay? Okay. It's going to be all right, sweet. I just want you to know that I love you, though, okay? And I'm proud of you. That's a good thing that you've just given up, and don't worry about it. We all go through something in life. No, you don't want that. You're going to be okay. I thought the same thing. You know, I tried to commit suicide last year after my husband left me. But look at me now. I'm still working, and everything is okay. Your name is Michael what? Michael Hill? Guess what, Michael? My last name is Hill, too. You know, my mom was a Hill. Tell him to come on. Come on. Okay, he just got his phone. That's all he got is his phone. It's just him. Okay, it's just him. Mm-hmm. Hello? Yes. I'm telling you something, baby. I ain't never been so scared all the days of my life. Babe, but you did great. Oh, Jesus. You did great. Antoinette Tuff went on to start a youth empowerment nonprofit organization after her ordeal of talking down a young would-be shooter in a school office near Atlanta in 2013. The young man was convicted and sentenced to a 20-year prison term. I'm Paul Ingalls, and it's the best of 2013 to 2017 on Peace Talks Radio today, the 11th to 15th season of our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Now, in those five years, a spate of undue force shootings by police are making news as well. It led us toward a program during which we talked with a host of folks offering their best ideas about how law enforcement officers could establish better trust with citizens and develop better skills for managing tense encounters with citizens and suspects. I'm Greg Seville. I'm a criminologist and a police trainer. I'm also a former police officer. I um, reside out of Seattle, Washington, and I've been involved with police training and, and research as a criminologist about police training for about 25 years. The more the police and community know each other by personal name and work together directly on like-minded problems and solving problems together, the more they do that, the better the relations are going to be. If that's the first place I'd go. The second place I'd go is we need to seriously retool and rethink the training systems for police. The training regimes are obsolete, out of date, and I think they lead to many of the problems. So we have just written a book about this whole problem called You in Blue, and I think that's the way we need to go. Well, tell me more about that then. Tell me more about where the training needs to go, where maybe it hasn't been going in recent years. Our approach is to say, look at the training methodologies, look at the way training is done, and you discover a rigid, uh, militaristic, uh, PowerPoint-driven, sage-on-the-stage style of learning, sprinkled with war stories and sprinkled with some scenarios that is obsolete and far out of date, and it leads to more problems than it's worth. And I was always intrigued in reading some of your materials online about an emphasis on emotional intelligence. Well, we introduced emotional intelligence about 12 years ago, and through the work we've done in emotional intelligence training, it's utterly revolutionized the way we approach learning and teaching. How this works is if 
a police officer is in an emergency situation and they're responding to a crisis, say a police chase, where there's a uh, high-speed pursuit and there's a lot of adrenaline, what happens uh, chemically is there's a fight-and-flight response. And, and adrenaline fires inside uh, the officer's brain and you get very anxious, uh, very nervous. And what happens is a lot of the access you have to the normal con conflict resolution and problem-solving strategies is minimized because you're focused on simply driving the car, getting to the scene, and so forth. Those are the kinds of things that, that lead to trouble later on because you're still driven by the emotions of the, of the, of the event. And no surprise when you look on these candid television images of, of use of force, they're happening at these, these peak moments. What emotional intelligence does is it trains uh, police officers how to learn how to control their state of mind in these emergency situations and on everyday situations by learn, teaching them how to focus on self-awareness, how to, how to calm themselves, how to use breathing methods, and all those kinds of things that are traditionally thought of as soft skills um, and are, are, are often demeaned or downplayed in the academy training. Uh, versus the hard skills, which is the, the tactical training and the shooting types of things. But the truth of the matter is the majority of these situations are driven by the soft skills. They're driven by the interactions before, the state of mind of the officer before. Emotional intelligence finally addresses that uh, in training. That's former police officer turned trainer Greg Seville from our July 2016 program on improving trust between law enforcement and citizens. Of course, you can find all the original full-length programs and raw interviews from these shows at our website, peacetalksradio.com, in episodes that we produced in the years 2013 through 2017. Also in the news in a big way for some time has been the political polarization in the United States. We've done a number of programs over the years hoping to improve our political discourse including hearing our own Suzanne Kreider talk with several therapists one year about how to handle political stress. Now here's an Albuquerque therapist, Bob Thompson, with his ideas on actually talking with each other to bridge that gap. Well, of course we should be talking to each other. In the absence of talk, we have oftentimes aggressive action. And that's not one of the things that I think is useful to any of us. So if we're going to resolve differences of opinion or different belief systems, we have to talk about it. We have to come to understand. I always think of Gandhi when the Civil War was going on and he was starving himself as a protest. And the two leaders of the factions came to him and said, you, you have to start eating. And he said, well, as soon as the Civil War stops, I'll, I'll start eating again. And one of the men said, you know, there's no way out for me because I've done horrible things. I've killed women and children and babies. And, and Gandhi said, well, there is a way for you. And the guy looked at him like he was out of his mind. He's been starving, so clearly he must be out of his mind. And he said, what you have to do, he said, there's thousands of orphans out there now because of this war. He said, you have to go out and you have to get a child who's an orphan. But it has to be a child from the other side. And you have to bring them into your home and raise them with that religion that you're fighting about. Their religion. That teaches understanding in a profound way. I think that's what we have to do in the world when we have all these people with different ideas. If we're not communicating and really understanding each other because we can't listen to each other, then trouble happens. You know, he's suggesting if you are really in disagreement with somebody, 
to the point where you'd be willing to do violence, it probably would make sense to really come to understand that way much better than you do because you, you probably don't. And Bob, what if you want to engage, say go to lunch or talk to a person who's on the political spectrum opposite of you? My own sense about what helps uh, communication go better when people have very different views is to be able to articulate clearly what the other person's view is to the point where they're saying, you really do understand where I'm coming from and why I'm coming from there. That tends to have defenses go down. The person doesn't feel like they have to turn the volume up and scream louder because I didn't hear them because they know I did hear them because I've just articulated exactly their position to the point where they're shaking their head. That's exactly right. We've made it right for them. And then we're in a position to talk about what it's like from our point of view. And if, and it usually does, start to stir them up because it's so different than their own, we can say, did I understand you? And they will probably say, yeah. And then you say, well, then try to afford me the opportunity of understanding me too. It helps. Albuquerque therapist Bob Thompson. Hear much more on the topic in our August 2016 and June 2017 editions at peacetalksradio.com. More ahead on our special program, Peace Talks Radio show highlights from season 11 through 15, and we'll continue in 30 seconds. I'm Paul Ingalls. It's a Peace Talks radio special that marked 15 years of our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution with highlights from seasons 11 through 15. During the five-year period of shows that carried us through our 15th season, we continued a tradition of spotlighting some of the greats from the history of peacemaking. Nelson Mandela died in that stretch, and we recalled his efforts to end apartheid in South Africa by hearing his words and talking to documentarian Joe Richmond, who is working on a program about Mandela. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. Joe, when you talk to so many people about another person, um, inevitably a few things are heard consistently. What would you say most all of your interview subjects agreed upon in their assessment or characterization of Nelson Mandela? What so many of them would say about Mandela, and it's been said so often that it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche that I think is true, is that what he gave to that moment, to the country and to that moment in history, was getting out of prison and not feeling bitter, not feeling angry, but being able to go you know, to the negotiating table to be able to, to, to look forward. And then what was the most unexpected thing you heard about him that maybe isn't part of what you have, you know, learned to expect to hear about Nelson Mandela? Well, you know, I th- we, we think now of Mandela as this kind of wonderful grandfathery, smiley figure and just this lovable old man. Um, but, you know, you go back in history and you're reminded that, um, that he was considered a terrorist. And, you know, by many definitions, he was a terrorist in the sense that he led the... 
the movement to, to take the movement away from nonviolence to start you know a bombing campaign and and to and to arm the struggle. I had made a statement where I called for armed struggle. Naturally, there was a great deal of resistance from the leadership, but I believed that we were moving into that situation because the government had left us with no other alternative. It's really hard to separate, you know, uh, any moment in history from the context in which it happens. History is never as black and white and as easy as, as we like to think. What do you think this story has to offer to inspire and inform people just trying to manage any conflict in their lives? Hmm. Pick Bota, who is uh, one of, the, one of the, um, the ministers of the National Party, the white ruling party, talks about that when they sat down that Mandela made this gave this whole history of the Afrikaner people. And that that's how he started, you know, basically saying, I understand your history, I understand your issues, I understand where you're coming from. And I think, and, and that obviously made a huge impact on him, you know, because as he says, you know, here I am about to sit down at the negotiating table with someone I've spent two decades thinking of as a terrorist. And he's studied me he studied you know my own grievances and my own history i think there's just something incredibly powerful about understanding your enemy both as maybe tactically and strategically but much more than that understanding the other side mandela made a point of doing that and i think it's something that um it's a lesson that i that i kind of take away from this whole history is that you know you have these preconceived notions about the way someone is or the way some history is you dig a little more and you realize you weren't you're not right (laughs) you know there's always something a little more complicated there radio producer joe richmond who profiled nelson mandela mandela died december 5th 2013. in 2014 we issued a special program spotlighting three landmark speeches by martin luther king jr including his selma to montgomery speech march 25th 1965 and we got expert commentary from one of his colleagues and speechwriters, the late Vincent Harding. It is normalcy all over Alabama that prevents the Negro from becoming a registered voter. No, we will not allow Alabama to return to normalcy. In a sense, he was saying the same thing to the country. Do not accept segregation, either by law or by practice, as an acceptable way of life. In a sense, he was saying, we can do much better than that. Just as he was boldly asking his audience to confront their fears, it seems that he tackles maybe the next most common objection in social movements, that change takes too long. How long? Not long, he says again and again toward the end of this speech. Speaking about the various tasks that had to be done, Martin knew that those things could not be done overnight, could not be done, quote, now. What he knew was they had to begin now. People had to commit themselves to do the work now, but he did not want people to feel that never was the answer either. So he kept calling, 
not long. King Jr. wrapping up his remarks at the end of the third march from Selma to Montgomery, the one that actually made it to the state capitol March 25, 1965. Later in our program, you'll hear more peacemaking history from Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, who led the farm workers' strikes of the 1960s. We'll also hear comments from researchers who have documented the efficacy of nonviolent protest movements versus violent campaigns for change. Plus, our program's responding to an uptick in hate speech in 2017. After just hearing about Mandela and King, let's hear from a lesser-known peacemaker, no less dedicated to her mission. Reporter Zach Rosen told us in 2013 about the woman known simply as Peace Pilgrim. When Peace Pilgrim started out, the Korean War was still going on, and an ominous threat of a nuclear attack was on the mind of many Americans. And so, with Peace Pilgrim written across her chest, she was walking, as she called it, coast to coast for peace. For 28 years, the entire length of her journey, she never used money, ever. She gave new meaning to the word minimalist. She wore the same thing every day, blue pants and a blue tunic, which held everything she owned. A pen, a comb, a toothbrush, and a map. That's it. And I own only what I wear and carry, and I just walk until given shelter, fast until given food. Don't even ask. It's given without asking. I tell you, people are good. There's a spark of good in everybody. In July of 1981, the day before she died, Peace Pilgrim was interviewed by Ted Hayes, the manager of a small radio station in Knox, Indiana. Peace Pilgrim, you know, there are a certain number of people that would probably think of somebody like yourself as a kook or a nut. Do you have uh, a problem uh, overcoming this barrier with some people? Well, I'm quite sure that some of those who have just heard of me must think I'm completely off the beam. After all, I am doing something different, and pioneers have always been uh, looked upon as being a bit strange. But you see, I love people, and I see the good in them. And you're apt to reach what you see. The world is like a mirror. If you smile at it, it smiles at you. I love to smile, and so in general, I definitely receive smiles in return. By 1964, she had already walked 25,000 miles. Eventually, she stopped counting. She was very directed in her purpose. She knew that... Everybody had their own calling and their own mission, and this was specifically her own. She was simply a singular witness for peace. 
And you know her peace message was overcome, overcome evil, evil with, good. with good and falsehood with truth and hatred with love. There is a magic formula for resolving conflicts. It is this. Have as your objective the resolving of the conflict, not the gaining of advantage. There is a magic formula for avoiding conflict. It is this. Be concerned that you do not offend, not that you are not offended. That formula will work between men or between nations. As she became more well-known, Peace Pilgrim began getting invitations to speak at schools and churches. That's what brought her to Knox, Indiana in the summer of 1981. You can hear the whole story on Peace Pilgrim in our March 2013 episode at peacetalksradio.com where all the complete shows from which these excerpts came, peacetalksradio.com. Despite the civil rights gains from minorities in the U.S. during Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and some strides since, many years into the 21st century, many of our citizens still struggle with race relations. We talked with some community leaders in one program who are doing their best to talk honestly about inherent bias and what we can all do to acknowledge it and make changes. The Reverend Alvin Herring of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation was one of our guests. The foundational building blocks of racist systems begin in places where, where biases are shaped and formed. And uh, those biases become uh, kind of locked in at a subconscious level or a level where we aren't always able to access them intentionally. And that those biases are performative. In other words, we act them out. Certainly we act them out explicitly with intention but a lot of times we're acting them out implicitly, without intention, but certainly um, with impact. We found that that's a much more uh, effective way to bring people into the kind of conversation and into the kind of orbit, if you will, uh, in which more intentional action and deeper conversation can happen. Well, I watched one of your talks, obviously in front of a room full of people at a conference, and you invited them to ask themselves, you know, where did you grow up? Did the people in your neighborhood look like you? Did the people in your school mostly look like you? And you were reporting just about every hand went up. Then when you said, uh, what about the grocery store you most often go to? Do the people mostly look like you? These are sort of conscious choices that... uh, maybe are feeding into an unconscious space, but we don't think about them that much. That one caught my attention, the grocery store one. Yeah. Well, maybe another way of approaching it is that these are unconscious biases that feed into and are the building blocks of conscious choices. And I think that's really what we're trying to isolate here, that you can form an association. For example, biases are are really often formed through association, either something you actually witness, but even more importantly, something you've been told or heard or been taught. And you you link two things together. These people are dangerous. These people um, are irresponsible. These people are lazy. These people will cheat you. You know, certainly very few people would say out loud and consciously, I believe this entirely. But you can still hold that bias and make choices in your life. And upon reflection, you can see that those choices are really in part or in total inspired by those biases. And that's why we end up living in segregated neighborhoods. Uh, This country and many of its largest cities 
are as segregated or more segregated than this country was in the 1950s. Public schools across the country have never lived up to Brown. We have never desegregated our schools. Our children still don't have an equal shot of sitting next to each other in a classroom and sharing that experience together. And certainly, you know, if you look at the laws on, on the books and the statutes and the constitutional protections and the vigorous enforcement, all of that is there. If you ask the average American, what's your feeling about segregation and education and housing? For the most part, poll after poll shows that our conscious and explicit orientation is those things are bad. And yet, we make choices to live in neighborhoods where people look just like us, shop in grocery stores, go to parks, worship, you name it. Our lives are lived to a large extent in this country, parallel to one another with very few areas of intersection. And so a lot of the, the organizing work, a lot of the, and for that matter, a lot of the work of faith and, and even a lot of the work of this foundation is to move us into a conscious dialogue where there can be clarity, accountability, where we can heal, and we can really reach for something better with real intention. You invite people in these talks to challenge that uh, old saying that I have lots of fill-in-the-blank friends, black friends, Hispanic friends, Native mm -hmm. American friends. Say more about that challenge. Yeah, I think one of the ways in which we let ourselves off the hook when we are made to confront our biases is that, well, we have friends. You know, we, we, as you said, we have black friends, we have Jewish friends, we have Muslim friends, we have white friends, we have Latino friends, we have Asian friends. As though that then excuses us from ever holding either consciously or unconsciously, attitudes, biases, prejudices, and perceptions that ultimately support and become the fuel of the systems that really deprive of us all of equal access and equitable opportunity and equitable treatment. And that's never sufficient. It's one thing to say, I have black friends. It's another thing to say, I understand through my close association better what, it, what, what that experience is like. But then there's another thing to say that I really have walked inside of that space intentionally with my friend and I've come out on the other side as an ally, as a person committed and willing to work not just for, for what's good for me and my family, but what's good for them and their family. And even folks who say, I have good friends, when you ask them, so those friends visit with you? Uh, you know their children's names? Uh, you shared anniversaries, birthdays, holidays with them? You've sat with their sick loved ones and they've sat with yours? Then that I have a friend thing begins to break down. Reverend Alvin Herring of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. In 2017, things certainly broke down when hate groups rallied in places like Charlottesville, Virginia, and elsewhere where fights broke out between the hate groups and counter-protesters. Those events, in part, led to a panel we convened on Peace Talks Radio about how one might best confront hate speech. Well, I can tell you when I was watching the Charlottesville 2017 event that I was thinking that uh, some of the counter-protesters got into skirmishes with the white supremacy marchers were overlooking key components of effective nonviolent protest. Uh, freedom marchers and lunch counter-protesters of the 60s were trained to take the abuse and, and the violence without resisting. They were taught not to intervene when fellow protesters were being savagely beaten. Same message from Gandhi, right, John Deere? I mean, essentially. Right. 
priest, activist, and author John Deere favored a broader approach to a solution. Violence doesn't work. And violence in response to violence always leads to further violence. It's not going to transform anybody. And we need to change all these people. We all need to change. And everybody's redeemable. But uh, a violent response to these kind of uh, demonstrations of, of hate uh, will only inflame the situation. And the media loves that. Whereas active, engaged nonviolence, we know statistically now, works. And that's what is not also being reported. The studies coming out, we've never had it before in, in history. And the greatest example is Dr. Erica Chenoweth, mm -hmm. Why Civil Resistance Works. She's been on our program. Yeah, yeah she's studied mm -hmm. every violence situation in the world in the last 106 years and has proven that nonviolent response uh, ends, that works to end a war nonviolently is much more powerful and effective and leads to more nonviolent social democratic societies. So you apply that in our personal lives, in these protests against the Klan, and all the other wars in the world. This is our, Dr. King is still right. Nonviolence is our only hope. It's our only, it's a methodology for social change that works to transform everyone nonviolently. It uses nonviolent means for nonviolent ends. But You've got to train people, mm -hmm. yeah. and you've got to teach people, and you've got to fund it. And they're spending a trillion dollars on educating violence. We're all brainwashed in violence. And how could people who are losing their power, white, ignorant people, you know, who have put their identity in that, they don't know anything but violence. And, you know, so our responsibility is we all have to be involved in the movement. We have to change this country to fund the education of nonviolent conflict resolution for every human being on the, on the planet, really. And, uh, and to institutionalize nonviolent conflict resolution in every city, mm -hmm. in every country, between all the countries. This is if we're going to survive. Later in that program that John Deere appeared on, we played back some hopeful tape from a 2010 interview KUNM News Director Elaine Bumgardel did with someone who made the big changes in his life that ended his participation in a culture of violence. Frank Mink was, in fact, a fully involved white power skinhead as a younger man until he turned toward a path that has him now championing diversity and tolerance. He told Elaine when and how that happened for him. What happened was a, a, a Jewish guy took me under his wing and taught me the antique business. And he knew that I was still a Nazi. I had a big swastika on my neck. And, and uh, he wasn't like a, a religious Jewish guy, but he was definitely Jewish. And he... Uh, one day he was giving me the pep talk because I used to always say how stupid I was. Like it was just a thing I always said. I don't know why. You know, probably the inner self felt that way. And one day he just gave me this pep talk about how I'm the most street smartest person he's ever met. And I remember as he's talking to me, I had my Nazi boot, I had my Doc Martens, all my red laces in it. And we're in a truck driving through New Jersey. So there's not much to look at. You know, it's New Jersey. So you just kind of talk to each other. And as he kept talking to me about how street smart I was and I remember looking down at my boots and just being so embarrassed, just absolutely embarrassed. Here's this guy who is just a great, great human being in my life, and and I still hate him, you know. And so that was the day I kind of just came to terms with it. And when people say, you know, if racist people come and say, you know, what about this and racism and, you know, ain't you proud to be white and all this stuff. And I know that where that pride comes from is not really it's really not a pride it's more of a we hate other people because of well god consistently a higher power came into my life 
and it consistently kept proving that belief wrong to me. He kept putting people in my life at the wrong and the right times and saying, Frank, judge now. Like, you're the biggest screw-up I got going on this earth. And I, I was. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was a liar. I was all that stuff. And, uh, and so God finally slapped me for the last time upside the head. That's Frank Mink, author of Autobiography of a Former Skinhead. Stay tuned for more highlights of Peace Talks radio shows from 2013 through 2017 when we resume in 30 seconds. listening to just some of the best of Peace Talks Radio from programs between 2013 and 2017 that carried us through our 15th anniversary. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and you can find out more at peacetalksradio.com. It was a great honor for us to have United Farm Workers co-founder Dolores Huerta visit with our Carol Boss in 2014 to remember her colleague Cesar Chavez and key moments in the strikes that led to better working conditions and pay for migrant farm workers around the country in the 1960s and beyond. In the summer of 1965, it seemed like strike fever was sweeping California. And I wanted to ask you to describe the scene in the meeting halls on the day of the vote to walk out of the vineyard in that summer. And I do want to add to that question because uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, uh, Caesar strolled to the fields or went into a field to talk to farm workers and everybody came out on strike. It didn't happen that way at all. We started organizing farm workers in 1962 uh, when we left the community service organization and uh, the strike did not start till 1965. During those three years, there was a lot of painstaking organizing you know, meeting with farm workers in their homes, meeting with families, convincing them that they had power, convincing them that they could make changes, convincing them that if they didn't do this, nobody was going to do it for them. So in 1965, when the strike happened, the workers were already organized. And since the Filipino farm workers came out on strike, then we had to support them. But it was, of course, very thrilling when uh, we got the workers together, and uh, you know, then they, you know, had they had to take a strike vote. And they, when they did, of course, it was very exhilarating. It sounded like cries of strike literally rocked the meeting halls. Well, yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. And it was very uh, scary for the workers, too, because you're talking about people that were very poor. Uh, when we went out on strike in 1965, the wages for the farm workers were like 90 cents an hour. And uh, the, the initial strike, we said we're going to strike for $1.25. And uh, before... Within a couple of months, the growers raised the wages to $1.25, uh, but then we knew that the, the real issue was getting recognition, uh, getting the rights so that the workers could have representation, uh, so that they could have uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements, which really bound the growers legally. Uh, not only could they raise the wa- had to raise the wages and the workers could negotiate their wages, but that they also uh, had to provide other benefits like drinking water, toilets, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, things that the workers did not have. That, you know, uh, protections against uh, 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 when they would be fired unjustly or, you know, laid off uh, when they shouldn't have been laid off. So they needed additional protections, not just wages. 
And that's what a collective bargaining agreement is between employers and their workers. And that's what we were shooting for, uh, getting something that was enforceable by law, and it couldn't just be taken away. Of course, that strike grew into a national boycott, and um, you directed that national boycott, didn't you? I uh, ran the boycott from Chicago to New York, from Canada uh, to Florida. And then we had uh, other people that ran it on the West Coast. Uh, when we think of the boycott, we have to think of that as a nonviolent economic strategy because since we couldn't win in the fields, you know, we were getting arrested. Uh, they had these court injunctions on us that limited the number of pickets that we could have uh, at a thousand acre field, only five people to a field, so that the strike breakers couldn't even see us. And that's why we had to go to the boycott. Later in his life, Cesar Chavez addressed a community group about the power of the boycott. And so we said, why go to the politicians? Why not, why not go directly and go to the marketplace where you can put direct pressure on those corporations that can find a solution for you? That we recommend that. that we've long, we live long enough to know that it works. You see, we hear that, the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows. Boycotts make stranger bedfellows still. We can learn a lot from Dr. King and from Gandhi. You know, when, on the, when the bus boycott, there was no way in the world that those blacks could have ever wanted politically. They couldn't. Politically, they didn't have any power. And they came up with the idea of the boycott. And the boycott began to work. Gandhi's boycotts, some were tremendous boycotts, some were strokes of geniuses. And they the whole country without war. We just missed it because people were, there wasn't a shitty war, so that's not important. But we should reflect on those instances when things were done without a shooting war. Those are important things to reflect on, understand, and appreciate, and try to replicate. When things get done without a shooting war, that's what we should try to replicate, says Cesar Chavez in a talk late from his life, posted to YouTube. And in our 2015 season, Carol Boss talked with Erica Chenoweth, who, with research partner Maria Stefan, had just released a study that proved that nonviolent resistance movements were more often more effective than violent uprisings throughout history. We developed a research design where we looked from 1900 to 2006 worldwide at every known example where people had used nonviolent resistance to either remove an incumbent leader from power or to achieve territorial independence through secession or through the expulsion of a military occupation or colonial power. And uh, we compared them against their violent counterparts. And that's basically where the research came from. What we found, of course, is that the nonviolent campaigns succeeded twice as often as the violent ones. And they also achieved significant material concessions, such as autonomy or the forcing of uh, competitive elections more than twice as often as their violent counterparts. Well, it doesn't always work. I mean, there have been some failures. Is, are there any on the top of your mind that you can talk about and, and give us the reasons why they didn't succeed? Sure, there, there are many examples where nonviolent resistance has failed. Um, there are certainly many examples where violent resistance has failed as well. The ones at the top of my mind for nonviolent resistance are cases like Iran in 2009 um, and Burma in 2007. 
many people will point to those two as as iconic failures. And the the 2007 and 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 really 1998 uprisings in Burma show us a few really important things. The first is that um, when the when the campaign remains largely urban, leftist intellectuals and students, um, and doesn't really expand out to other bases of support among the poor, among the rural classes. Um, and among different ethnic and social categories that may be arbitrary in the country, um, it's often unlikely that the campaign has the growth potential in terms of the numbers that it needs to succeed. The second thing we learn is that when there's over-reliance on techniques such as demonstrations, rather than the uh, flexibility and innovation of new techniques like boycotts and stayaways and other methods of dispersion, um, we tend to see these movements um, become a little bit predictable, and the predictability of them makes it easier for the opponent to suppress them. And then uh, the third thing would simply be the inability of these movements to create meaningful defections within those pillars of support. So economic elites, business elites, security forces didn't defect, and part of that is mainly because the movements never became kind of rural-based um, or diverse enough to force that crucial self-interested choice that occurs within those pillars of support. Okay, thus far we've been talking about regions in, um, in the world. Let's turn to our country, the USA. Do you think that nonviolent resistance has a kind of an image problem in our country? Well, I, I think nonviolent resistance has an image problem in a lot of places. I think that part of the reason Maria and I generally use the, warm, the term civil resistance, for example, is because we find that it has less baggage than using the term nonviolent resistance, where people immediately assume that you're arguing from a moral position rather than a strategic or politically efficacious position. Um, and I think that you know part of that is nomenclature, part of it is just sheer misunderstanding about the power of nonviolent resistance. Um, the way that people are taught in school is that, um, you know, Gandhi and King were just wonderful human beings um, who had very admirable moral qualities and behavior, um, but that, you know, they both got assassinated and neither of them really ended up getting what they wanted in the end. So the nice guys finish last. <laughs> Um, and we celebrate warfare, we celebrate our war heroes much more, even when, uh, you know, they fail. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of a strange double standard um, that occurs um, with talking about nonviolent resistance. And in many progressive or radical communities, um, nonviolent resistance is a dirty word because it is equated with passivity or pacification. And there's you know, arguments out there that nonviolence helps the state because people are not really willing to engage in truly militant radical action, um, and therefore the state wins. And I think, you know, both of these perspectives that are very skeptical about nonviolent resistance are just not supported in the empirical record at all. Nonviolence researcher Erica Chenoweth. One of the real highlights of our 2013 through 2017 seasons was welcoming back to our air our co-founder Suzanne Kreider, who gamely recovered from a brain bleed in 2012 that challenged her speech and movement. One of her many fine shows was talking to Rob Carwath of an organization called Speak Your Peace that was trying to bring more civility back to political discourse. 
the centerpiece of the program is is nine tenets. I often like to say they are things that we learned in kindergarten and first grade, or we should have. I think most of us did. They are things like listen, apologize, pay attention. If you're going to criticize, make the criticism constructive. Nine tenets that, that say, I will, and that's an important part of it. It's I will. It's not I'm going to make you do these things, but I will apologize when needed. I will pay attention. I will do what it takes to engage in healthy conversation with other people in community. And I expect that those will be granted to me too. And sometimes when I present or, or show people speak your piece or talk about it, they say, gosh, is this all there is? You know, where are the trained facilitators? And I tell them that the program was deliberately made simple so any community could use these tools. And truly, these are the simple, basic human needs that all of us want and, and truly need. Uh, and when we get them, we're willing to engage and we'll come back again, even if we don't win the day. But when we aren't treated with those measures of civility, we're not as likely to come back and we may end up saying, I've had enough of the circus. Speak Your Peace is needed maybe now more than it has ever been needed. It has worked at every level of uh, community, every size, every geography. We have not worked with a community that says, you know, this really didn't take care of what our needs were. Thank you, but I mean, it has worked in all of the places where it has been. Uh, and we don't go into communities and say, we've got your solution. We say we don't even in some cases truly know your issues as we certainly don't know them as well as you know them. What we do bring of value is a set of tools or a toolkit, if you will, that will help you build solutions yourself. It's not about us coming in and with the magic elixir. We come in with tools and say, you can use these tools to fix your problems. And communities themselves go about doing it. And that's probably one of the best parts of Speak Your Peace. Yes, speak your peace. That's another way of saying what we've been dedicated to going back to 2002 here on Peace Talks Radio, where we speak our peace and offer you tools for how to speak your peace and live your peace more effectively day to day. Hear every show from our series going all the way back to the start at peacetalksradio.com. It's also where you can find out how you can support this program into the future. Peace Talks Radio is produced separate and apart from your public radio outlet by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Help us if you can at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>